0: Well,
1: a very good evening to our listeners. It's 7 o'clock on Wednesday, the fourth day of January, and let me welcome you to This Week in Interview. My name is Thomson Fontaine, and I want to welcome our listeners that have joined us uh, via Q95 in Dominica. Welcome to TDN Radio and Q95 on this special edition of This Week in Interview. Our special guest this week is Sergeant Major, Command Master Sergeant Ralph Alsendorf of Grand Bay, retired, US military. He's a veteran of wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia. He was in Operation Restore Hope in Somalia, Operation Provide Comfort in Haiti in 1994. Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan in 2001, and also a veteran of the two Iraq wars. A 20-something year, 28-year veteran, 29-year veteran, rather, of the U.S. military, a Dominican by birth, born in the village of Bay, And he's our special guest for the entire hour. We have quite a lot to talk to him about, his career in the military, His view of the world, a very good view that he's received over the years, been a career military man, and he rose very well there in the ranks of the U.S. military. We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about his views on Dominica. So let me say at this time a very special welcome to you, Command Master Sergeant Alcindor.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Thompson, for such a kind introductory uh, of me to your network. My name is Command am Major Alcindor, of course, born in Grand Bay, Berica, Grand Bay, Dominica, and raised in Grand Bay. Immediately after high school, I did jump in the opportunity to migrate to the United States Virgin Islands, St. Thomas Virgin Islands, to be more specific. There, I decided that was a good opportunity to know the world. And I decided immediately in the late 60s, 69, that I should try to join the United States Army. Well, in those days, it wasn't that easy. You would have to obtain your green card in order to join the services. But I was so determined, even as a regular visitor of the island, it was difficult. So I was so determined I decided to even try to get a birth certificate from a native Virgin Islander.
1: Wow. Well,
2: (laughs) that wasn't, I was not successful in that case, Doc. So I waited until 1977 when I did get my green card. And on the very day I received my green card, I enlisted in the United States Army.
1: So Sergeant, now, Sergeant, Sergeant Major, just before you continue, I wanted to ask you, what what gave you that desire to be were you part of the military in Dominica? Were you part of the Cadet Corps at the time at the academy that you went to? Or what made you have such a an intense desire to be part of the US military?
2: Oh, well, that's a very good question, Doc. Uh, the, the reason why I really was Interested in joining the services is because of the frontline states in Africa. If you remember in the late 60s and 70s, the frontline states, mainly Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique, they were all in turmoil and fighting for independence. Of course, Angola and Mozambique, they were trying to get their independence from their motherland, Portugal. And in Zimbabwe which was Rhodesia then was going through the struggles. And I decided being, you know, with my revolutionary thinking, I always wanted to be a liberator, to join the liberation movement in Southern Africa. So I thought the only way I would be able to familiarize with weaponry, know all the tactical moves and everything else to be a soldier, the only way I could have done that is to join the army, even though at that time, Vietnam was at its peak during the, uh, the Nixon administration, and I decided regardless what happens, I want to be in the army, and then when I do get trained, hopefully I will be able to travel to southern Africa right. and join the liberation movement.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good good reason indeed. And in fact, you did get your chance to be a part of that. You, you went to Somalia in 1993. We remember Black Hawk Down and Operation Restore Hope when um, Bill Clinton was president, and you were part of that. You also, so you, also, you participated in something that was very significant at this time.
2: Yeah, yes, indeed. But at that time now, everything, the geopolitical landscape in Africa was changed. Now, it had already changed. If you remember Zimbabwe... Zimbabwe got its independence, and also Mozambique, Angola, they all became independent states, I think. Now, maybe again, it's independence in 1991, if
1: I'm... Yes, that's correct. uh, Mm -hmm. In
2: 1991, Mozambique also gained its independence in 1975. So things were changing rapidly, but still, I still had the burning desire to join. But what happened was, as you get older, and time changes, man change. I got married joined the services after basic training and the advanced individual training i received from the services i was sent to europe now that was a totally different ball game it was then if you remember the iron curtain mm-hmm. the east versus the west and i i thought it was it was a great experience just to be in europe and there i stayed for the first assignment was almost four years went back to the States for more training, went back. And then I spent some 12 and a half years in Europe. So, you know, by then everything changed. You're married, you've got kids, and the mindset is different. Mm -hmm. But later on in 1991, 1992, when I was sent to Somalia, it wasn't really what I expected as being in the further down south, what we call the frontline states. Somalia was a totally different ball game. We went on a humanitarian mission where we had to feed Operation Restore Hope. Mm-hmm.
1: But bef- now, that bef- was- before Somalia, I'm going to come to that in a while, but I-, I wanted you to take us to Desert Shield in 1991, which was a couple years earlier. You-
3: 1989,
2: we got our matching orders. That is correct. Mm-hmm. I was in Germany, and uh, at that time, George Bush, the senior George Bush, He was the president, and he actually gave us our marching orders, my unit, to go to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. That was in 1989, 1990. That was in 1989, 1990. Went over there. We were in Kuwait for the liberation of Kuwait. You remember when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Now, that was my first experience in the military as far as being in a combat zone or to be, you know, part of the force or the forces. I think we, we spent exactly nine, eleven months over there. And as soon as we were back, of course, Kuwait was liberated. It was a very short war.
1: But <laughs> did you experience. see action at all in that war in 1991?
2: And not at all. We were more in a supporting mission like we supported logistically we were supporting the folks who were well ahead of us into kuwait but we were in northern saudi arabia we all played our role mm-hmm. but logistically speaking we supported the frontline and it was a very short war Also, it was very it wasn't the typical war that you hear of the conventional war you had saddam wronged it, a whole lot of civilians who were not trained and of course <laughs> they went out there and just to be killed. Very, very short war. Mm -hmm. Immediately after that, we went back, and then I was sent to Fort Drum, New York. That is where, from that time, the first thing I was engaged in is the operation in Haiti. We were sent to Haiti. I was a first sergeant, and in that operation, I think, was very close to me because I was from the Caribbean and the Haitian. There's something we shared together i thought it was a great opportunity it was uphold democracy if you remember that mission uphold democracy right nineteen ninety four nineteen ninety five i spent exactly nine months in haiti now that that i don't consider any kind of combat it was we went there to liberate the country in a sense to get reinstated aristide get rid of this general who took over and uh, yeah, it was an experience that I will not forget. But there was fun in spite of everything else. You saw people starving and all those kinds nice. of things. It was an experience I would never forget.
1: And the year Haiti. before that, you were in Somalia, which was you were Somali- actually in a combat zone right there in Somalia, although you were supposed to be there to be helping the U.S. deliver um, humanitarian aid. But it turned into, well, into a war of sorts. Uh, Black Hawk Down, yeah, well, well, of course, so- and all the rest of it.
2: Yeah. Well, in, in Somalia, it was, again, I don't know the the kind of... In Somalia, I had never experienced in my life a country that was so chaotic. You had all those guys traveling around in the pickup trucks and the anti-aircraft guns and all of that. It, it was just a country, very dysfunctional. And we coming from Fort Drum, New York, the 10th Mountain Division, it was something we had never really Experience. It's not the kind of war where you have the front line. We had guys firing at you at night. You don't know there, was, there wasn't any electricity. The country was totally in chaos, Somalia. But we went there and later on things got bad. You remember my, it was my very division that had its helicopter Brought down, and we had um, one of the guys who got killed, a helicopter pilot. He was he was of our unit in the Tenth
4: Mountain.
1: Right, because most and, of us remember Black Hawk Down, the, this popular correct. movie. That's how we remember it, and we also saw some of the action. So you're saying that the the, the 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 pilot who got killed was in fact part of your unit. You so you knew him from personally. The t- that's correct. Okay,
0: that's
2: that's correct. He was from the Tenth Mountain. In fact, the Tenth Mountain Division. We our our pilots, our officers, uh, got killed in that very helicopter, and they were dragged and trampled upon in the public in, in Somalia. This is something you just don't forget. It really messes with your psyche when you remember these things that you, people you know, pilots who you train with, and then there they get killed and were treated so badly, especially we went there on a humanitarian mission to feed the people. And it turned against us. I recall when we would drive down to Mogadishu, uh, they would jump in the back and grab our backpacks or whatever they could get. It, it was just totally just out of order, chaos. and everything was dysfunctional.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but, so but, that, that,
1: go ahead. Mm, I was about to say, but, but yet, in, in a lot of ways, as a soul there, you, you were able to take care of yourself, of course, and, and came on the, I'm, I'm assuming, for the first time, you know, live, in, in a live in a way it was a combat zone because although it was not a regular army that you're up against, but it turned out in the end to be, to be a lot of skirmishes and, and a lot of, of that. Well, well, indeed, it, indeed. Yeah?
4: Because I, I
2: remember when we moved in, we moved in from Mogadishu further inland, closer to the Ethiopian border, a name called Bella Duane or something of that sort. Um, I recall at nights you would have these guys throwing grenade launchers. We you know would attack... As much as they could they just decided that we were not there in their best interest they were the guys who really wanted to we call them the warlords they were fighting against each other different factions and we were unable that wasn't part of the mission the mission was solely to feed the people but yet still you have the guys the organized gangs who would attack at night or at any given time in the night you would have those rocket propelled grenades firing in our compounds and things of that sort. So it was indeed a combat, if you want to call it so, but combat is a sense where you don't even know who was firing at you. At any given time, you would drive down to Mogadishu and you would have folks firing at you, and you don't know who is who, who shoots at you, and there isn't any enemy, per se, in uniform, and that was the most annoying thing about it. So you don't know who is who. I can uh, really imagine how
1: how difficult that that was for you, but... So you, you move out of Somalia, and then here comes the war in Afghanistan in, in, in 2001. Between, between Somalia and Afghanistan, I take it that you were, you were based here in the U.S. or, or, or over there? No, No,
2: what After the war, after Afghanistan, well, before Afghanistan, actually, I had the opportunity to be stationed in South Korea, where I was the installation command sergeant major, which I would call equivalent to this mayor of a very small town. There I spent a whole year in South Korea. Now I think that was a little more dangerous than anything else because of the uncertainty of the North and technically South Korea and North Korea are still at war.
1: Right, right.
2: They're still at war. So that mission I thought was kind of unique in its own way. I spent a year there and on my return Fort Campbell, Kentucky, at that time I was a command sergeant major and then we got orders for
1: Afghanistan Afghanistan, and, and that's where it gets really interesting Two, 2001, right? 2001, December 2001 2000,
2: well, well um, 9-11 took place and then 2002 is when we, in my battalion was the very first battalion in the United States Army sent to Afghanistan, Afghanistan. from Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Seventh okay. of the first Aviation Battalion. We were Indeed, at that time, we were the largest aviation battalion in the world with over 900 men. And I was just fortunate, or whether you call it lucky or unlucky, to be the command sound major of that particular um, Battalion.
1: No, no. Tell us we, what does what does that entail, Command Sergeant? Because for those of us who are not too familiar with the military and and, and, and so on, does that mean that you're in command of, of a group of men, or or were you, that, were you the second well, in command? This is of how the they are. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, in the army, you have the command, You have the Sergeant Major of the Army. There is only one. And let me say to you that when you acquire this, is the most senior rank in the enlisted in the non commissioned officer corps. Command Sergeant Major E9 is the highest rank there is, and it's only 2% get that such, yes, right.
1: And then you as rank. a Dominican can achieve that. So we must say congratulations to you. for This is outstanding, right. certainly outstanding service.
2: Well, thank you. But in, in the military, I learned when I first got in, all you have to do is to work hard, know your job, study, and you will excel, and you have to be competent in everything from your physical fitness, your technical, your, your advanced individual training. you got to work on that and become so competent, and then you become a leader. And as time goes by, your seniority has a lot to do. There's an old saying in the military where the command sergeants, major, they are the subject matter experts in the fields. If, we, if you don't know something, you go to the sergeant major, and he definitely would have to give you the answer. Okay. And that's where the respect comes in. But um, just as I say, if you are a sergeant major of an installation, there's only one sergeant major of the installation. There's only one sergeant major of the Army. There's only one brigade sergeant major. There's only one battalion sergeant major. So I was the battalion sergeant major for the 7 or the one of First aviation in Fort Campbell, and we had the Chinook. And we were sent over to Afghanistan, and that was the beginning of, of the war in Afghanistan.
1: And interestingly enough, you know, Command Sergeant Major, I remember Afghanistan very well because during the time that you were over, you were in the south in Kandahar, I was actually in Kabul because I had gone over there as one of the very first Westerners, in fact. I was a, of a, in a group of four of us, four people. That went you in were because in you are just yes. I was in Kabul because the U.S. military had just gotten rid of the of the Taliban, and I was sent in from the IMF to actually help the government get back on their feet. And and um, so whilst I was in in Afghanistan, rather in Kabul, you were actually in Kandahar. and I think that's where I I think I heard about you for the very first time that you were you, you were down south right? and I was up I was up in Kabul. But I remember though, you know, when I was coming into into Kabul to land. I remember seeing that there were still minesweepers. I mean, the, you could still see the burnt-out um, planes and everything. They were still there in the airport. And it was like coming into into a war zone. That was in April of 2002. I remember that very clearly. That's probably one of the most profound experiences that I've had because it was still a dangerous place. And I remember they they, they warning us um, when we had our security briefing telling us that we should not venture out to the south. That's where you, you guys were, you know, and, and of course, that's in the correct. hunt, in the hunt for... That's correct, Kandahar, actually, mm-hmm.
2: Kandahar was the birth, or not was, but it's the birthplace of the Taliban. Kandahar, actually, that's where the seat of the Taliban, the government of the Taliban, that's where it was. But let me say to you, entering Afghanistan was a very interesting thing for all the combat soldiers. I recall that you only travel at night. The aircraft was in total darkness. Coming into Kandahar, and I'll tell you one thing: <laughs> soldiers will tell you, no one, no one, could see anything while flying into this combat zone because the Taliban's were known to fire anti, uh, you know, missiles, uh, aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles. So we had to go in in a very combat mode. Total darkness. Everyone is fully. All the gears on, just ready for action. And I recall that very well, and going into Afghanistan was something else. But it was a war, and we had to deal with it.
1: And I guess it was, you know, and war they say is never, is never pleasant, It's never, is never good, and you know, but in a way that that war, a lot of people felt was was justified in the sense that it it got rid. Re- and I, I I actually got to see it firsthand. I I got to see the the effect or the impact that the Taliban had on the people of of, of Afghanistan. Because I remember, you know, in building in those government offices. And having documents, you know, having documents that were the last set of documents that were ever written was actually 1996. Everything after 1996 was completely dis- destroyed. There was no written documents. There was no recording. There were there were no books being kept. Nothing. And it was really interesting to see. It was almost like time kind of stood still because it, the Taliban got rid of of all of the intellectual property. They got rid of the computers and everything else. Correct. And Correct. it was almost Correct. like the, this society was 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 really backward. But in a way, when you think of what the U.S. did, I thought that was a very good thing at the time to get rid of the Taliban and to restore some respectability to. The people of, of Afghanistan. But as you would know, it, 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 is, it is what, 10 years later, and the U.S. military is still over in Afghanistan.
2: And I think we, our presence, probably even not in large numbers as it is right now, as, as it was, will we'll always have uh, some kind of presence in Afghanistan because we must remember that Osama bin Laden and his henchmen, they planned and they hatched out their plan to attack America in Afghanistan. That's why if you remember Clinton had one time fired some cruise missile at them over there and were unsuccessful to get Osama. But the country is a country that is totally different. The Taliban, the the students as they're known of Islam, they're anti education. They don't think their ladies should be educated and it's very backward country. In fact I was amazed I have pictures of a Taliban I met, and he was 50 years old, and he looked like, by any Western standard, I think, you would think this gentleman would be in his 70s. And you can understand, after the long, protracted war with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, these people, that's all they know, it's a war.
1: Right, right.
2: And I don't think things are going to change that much, even though we've pumped in all the billions of dollars. And I see NATO is now preparing to recover some $30 billion worth of equipment to return to the West. But it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a long time. And I don't know how much successful everything we're going to be in that particular part
4: of the world.
1: All right. uh, Quite an an interesting um, observation there. Now, in case you're just joining us, you are in fact listening to this week in interview. Our special guest uh, this week is uh, Commander Master Sergeant Ralph Alcindor, originally from Grand Bay, attended the Saint Mary's Academy, and uh, for the past twenty nine years, or rather for over twenty nine years, served in the U.S. military, rising to the highest rank of an enlisted officer. In the U.S. military, a veteran of campaigns in Somalia, Haiti, Afghanistan, and of course yes, Iraq storm. and the storm. Iraq, yeah. No,
2: Iraq was an interesting thing. Go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. That's what I was about to, to talk about. And just to say as well, um, Command Master Sergeant Major, we will open the lines a little later on for our listeners um, who would be interested in dialoguing with you as well. And let me just say the numbers that you would need to call if you would like to talk to um, to um, Command Master Sergeant. Alcindor 301 327-6889 that is 301 327-6889 you can also send us an email radio at the dominican.net radio at the dominican.net or if you're in dominica and you'd like to talk to him as well you can send us you can actually call us there's a local number that you can call in at and that number is 442 1211 that is a local dominican number if you wish to talk to him and you're in dominica 442 one two one one. Uh, so yes, we were talking about um, about Iraq,
2: Afghanistan. well, Afghanistan. Immediately after my battalion returned from Afghanistan, and it was a very short time the soldiers had from their redeployment to the U.S. and then immediate deployment to Iraq. Now, I recall General Petraeus that everybody heard of in the news. He was just assigned to the first as our division commander. Then we were sent to Iraq. My battalion, again, we moved in, and that was in 2003. We moved in, and we were positioned up in the northern sector. We, we moved in from Kuwait, very long convoy, all the way up north to what is known as Mosul, and uh, they, it, Mosul is, for those in the Bible who knows the Bible, the biblical name, Nineveh, that's Mosul.
1: Oh, okay, interesting.
2: N-Nid- yeah, mm-hmm. Nineveh, we yeah. were, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very historic place. I recall going through, had the opportunity to see the, the legendary rivers of the Euphrates and the Tigris, Babylon. I mean, you go to Iraq and you, you have that feeling, you have that biblical feeling of all the, all the ancient, times of abraham traveling that long thing from Ur, north of kuwait all the way into israel and there you are and that was a feeling in itself that you just cannot forget in life just to see the russian waters of the tigris or the euphrates blue water in the desert the open desert i'll tell you if it's one thing in life I'll remember, in as much as there are the bad things, but you try to think of the positive things of the war. And when you think of the legendary rivers that is named in the Bible, and you know you've seen them, you've been on the banks, and you, you just can't help it to feel good about that in spite of everything else that took place.
1: Yes, and um, come on, Master Sergeant, you actually saw war. You saw the, if you like, the ugly face of war. I'm sure you saw men well, being well, killed. You, you, you know, you, you've seen the... Perhaps the really bad side of war. What are your feelings about it? I mean, how now that you you know you're removed from it and can can you just share with our listeners, I mean your side. I, I will about tell you the, the, the
2: bad thing about war is when you have your buddy, your comrade who you know quite well, you've developed that relationship and you're there with him today and a few hours later that someone comes up to you and tell you, "Son Major San Major so-and-so was just killed. He was shot in his SUV along with his driver. And then you, it, it takes a couple of days before you can actually digest that. And really, because I recall when a buddy of mine, same rank, was killed, his driver was killed, and his, his, his stuff was ripped away from him. His vest was taken, his weapons and everything else. I see. It took me two days before I could actually absorb that because I couldn't even go to the van, the makeshift mug where we had our dead soldiers to, to say I went to the dining facility or a place where we eat. And it took a while for you to really come to grip with that. This guy was talking to you a few hours ago, and then a couple of hours later, you're told that he was killed out there by snipers or insurgents, whether it's an IED or the but in this particular case they shot him and his his driver. So it, it has an effect on your psyche. It definitely messes with your psyche. It's not a thing that anyone can relate to. But Doc let me say to you also there is another thing that can really mess with you. When you have to go and see your soldiers taken away from a burnt helicopter. We had we have had many helicopters shot down and burnt and you had the soldiers that you know soldiers that you had this relationship integration counseling reception counseling and there you saw them sergeant so major they give you a hug and then later on you have to know this guy was pulled out roasted in a helicopter a burnt helicopter that that has an impact forever on you on your psyche i must say
1: Yes, I can well imagine. And when you think about it, these are people who, who volunteer, and, and these are all, it's all a volunteer army and, and, and stuff, and yet they have, to give, they have to pay the ultimate ultimate price. And, sacrifice. Yeah, ultimate well, sacrifice.
2: it is an all-volunteer force, of course. It is an all-volunteer force, but um, that is the price of war and the mission. When you go out there, you don't think of anything. You know you have given a mission. You have to go out there and get the mission accomplished,
1: accomplished and, and stay alive as well in the process. And
2: stay, and stay alive. Well, to me it was a gamble because you, you're driving, whether you're going to, wherever you're going to, you never know who is setting up the IED improvised explosive device that would just blow and blow your vehicle. And as you know, today we have over 32,000 men who are either amputees double, triple amputees, those with all kind of metals in the head and I mean, this is a war that will not be forgotten and we have well over 4,000 dead, almost 5,000 folks dead so it's, it's something that will live till I die in my head that will never be forgotten.
1: I can well imagine you know, It's and, and let me thank you of course for your service, you know, because when you think about it, you are, you know the, the fact that you came, and we are thankful that you came back alive and and um, well, thank God, at least now, the, the, the war in Iraq is ended. And white I, wanted, I wanted to play just a, a very brief um, uh, piece there from President Barack Obama announcing the end of the war in Iraq. And I would like your comments on it, Sergeant Major. Mm-hmm.
4: When I took office, nearly 150,000 American troops were deployed in Iraq. And I pledged to end this war responsibly. Today... Only several thousand troops remain there.
2: You want me to comment on the withdrawal of soldiers from Iraq?
4: This is a season of homecomings, uh, and military families across America are being reunited for the holidays. In the coming days, the last American soldiers will cross the border out of Iraq with honor and with their heads held high. After nearly nine years, our war in Iraq ends this month. We're here to mark
1: the okay, end I'm, of I'm this war. I'm not sure if you're able to hear You're having like, technical did I did not hear, not hear but
2: okay. I am familiar I am quite aware and um, familiar with with the, the president commander in chief his decision and
1: Right uh, of and he was that was part, that was
2: part of his campaign of course absolutely, that was the pledge. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. But but let me
2: let me mm-hmm. say let me say to you that number 1 I don't think this war this this is a war it's over in a sense I don't know if that was, if there was any, <laughs> uh, let, let me put it this way, Doc, that the war in Iraq, we should have never gone there, period.
1: All right. Honestly. I, I was tempted to say, but it's, but it's, it's refreshing coming, coming from you, and I, I tend to agree with you.
2: I, I am a retiree now, and when you, you know, just reflect on everything that has taken place, the comrades who have died, and the, 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 just think of the financial burden that this particular war has put not only on the nation but on when when you even globally speaking the war affected just about everything because you you think of the people who died and uh, what it has done to iraq and you can see the aftermath of it up till now iraq is not really stable politically they are still in turmoil you can see that their their leader al-maliki there's nothing they're still divided and I don't know if we did the right thing, because the current situation in the Middle East, we wish, I personally, and this is me, I'll opine on that, I think we were better off with Saddam Hussein in there, whether uh, he was a tyrant or not, but he took care of business. He kept the Iranians at bay. Look what we have to deal with today. Look at the uncertainty in the Middle East, in the Gulf, with Iran in particular. Saddam, If Saddam was there, we wouldn't have to worry about Iran as we are today. Right. Right. Because in Iraq, 60% of the population there is Shia, just about 20 or something percent uh, Sunni Muslims, and you have the Kurds in the north. That's why up till today the Kurds in the north, they have the autonomous region, and, and I can understand why. Because the Shia now, with the Iranians, we don't know what, the, the, what is expected. I'm, I think sooner or later we will see Iraq and Iran being one, and they might as
1: well turn against the West. And Saddam, is, is important, in my yeah, it's important to, to give as well to give our listeners some context uh, because um, when, when Iraq and, and Iran fought this very long war
2: 8-year, 9-year nine nine year war
1: in the 80s, Iraq was being ruled by Saddam who was a, who was a Sunni. 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 Was and right. and um, the, the Iranians are predominantly Shia. Correct. Right, and right now in Iraq, what you have is that the Sunni Sunni the minority Shia. in Iraq and the
2: Shia dominated government.
1: And yeah. now you have a Shia dominated. The Shias are in the, are in the majority in the in in Iraq, and then now they now hold the seat of power. So that's why you say that there is a, a good chance that they will link up with Iran. Well, and absolutely, form this. because
2: mm-hmm. if if you remember the cleric Mottaba, he this guy spent most of his time in Iran. He is also very much anti-America. And I I just don't see how on earth that war we are going to really say, well, we did. We did get rid of Saddam, and Saddam really needed to go. Don't get me wrong, because he was a tyrant. However, when you weigh the whole thing, I think we were better off with Saddam Hussein in power and keeping the Shia the way he had them and keeping the Iranians at bay. Today, look what we have. We have the Iranians creating all kinds of problems. Iran has become a thorn in everybody's butt today in the Middle East, to include the Sunnis who dominate Saudi Arabia and the, the, the United Arab Emirates. Even in Syria,
3: right. the
2: majority is Sunnis. And you have the Alawites the, you know, who are in power, minority, but again they are backed by the Iranians.
1: Yes, yeah, so what we have basically is what we call unintended consequences. I think when you know, the war was entered into v- rather hastily, and now you have those consequences, in fact, you've made the situation worse. So not only did you have the, the tremendous loss in blood and treasury, uh, but you also have now a situation where, in fact, you've made the world a lot more unstable. Iran feels Correct. emboldened because they have a very good ally in Iraq right now and they can effectively control these very critical waterways right there in, in, in Correct. the Middle East.
2: And I, I have said, so now that I am retired, I'm looking at the whole thing. N- number one, when I was in Iraq and I saw the kind of cruise missiles and the Tomahawk missiles, and you talk about each of these missiles cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And to see what the targets were, it was just incredible. You, you thought that was crazy. Thousands of dollars to launch this tomahawk and cruise missiles and their targets were nothing but corrugated of course there were some areas iris- i think it today when we all look back and i'll tell you this is shared by a lot of officers and other soldiers they will tell you it was a war that should have never taken place very it brought a lot of financial burden on our country, on our economy, and on our allies also, because the allies, not only America paid, everybody paid a very high price, the so-called forces who got together to fight Saddam, and it was just, to me, a waste.
1: Yes, I can well imagine. Well, in case you're just joining us, um, we are, in fact, talking there to Command Master Sergeant Ralph Alcindor, originally of Grand Bay in Dominica, and he spent the past 29 years in the military, a veteran of all the major conflicts, U.S. major conflicts, um, commanding soldiers into battle. And we're talking about his military career. And we want to take a, just a very, very short break, um, Ambassador, and we'll come back to talk about Dominica. Please, a little bit of focus on the country of your birth, a country that I'm sure that you love a great deal. So we'll take a little break and then we'll come right back to this. All right. um, We are are back. We are back um, live with um, CSM. Ralph Alcindor and let me just tell you, uh, you can feel free if you'd like to join the conversation you can feel free to call from this point forward. The number you would need to call though if you are calling anywhere from overseas, 301 Three two seven six eight eight nine. That's 301 327 And if you're in Dominica and you wish to join the conversation, you can feel free to do so. The number four four two one two one one. That's four four two one two one one. And of course, you can always send us an email, radio at the Dominican.net, radio at the Dominican.net. Command Master Sergeant Ralph Alcindor, let's talk a little bit about Dominica. I know you've been away for a while, but you've never lost sight of your country. I know you share an enduring love and, and devotion to Dominica, and uh, I just wanted to get to your views, uh, even as we come to, you know, as we are winding down tonight, I wanted to get to your views on on the way you see Dominique. And if you, if, if you can, for uh, you know, contrast for us a bit, the Dominique you you left and the Dominique you have now. Okay, but before you do one hold this spot, we are getting a call coming in now. And uh, let me say a very good evening. Welcome.
0: Welcome. Good night.
1: Yes. Hi. Good night and welcome to this weekend in interview.
0: Yes. Yes, I would like to um, at least, um, you know, give honor to this gentleman, Mr. Sender, who has served in the U.S. military. And I think hearing him shows that he's a brave man. He has, um, you know, respect for people, for lives. And although oh, from time to time he has been in the war zone, but I, I'm sure that he's a man who believes in the Most High. And I'm sure from time to time he may have said a number of prayers for his return and for the return of many of his colleagues. Let me just say something that, that you are very, having a very good program. It's the first time that I'm listening to War Stories Live, technically. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, It's not really War. <laughs> yeah, and I know when you used to teach us at the academy, it was history and not, not something like that, but I'm I'm very happy that there's a twist. And also, you know, thing. but let me just say, too, that I will agree with uh, Mr. Arceldo, Sergeant Arceldo, that, um, you know, we would have been better off with, with Saddam's presence now. And, and I say so not just to give Saddam no credit and not in giving no tyrant credit. I'm saying the first war was unjustified. Where Iraq, 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 Iraq wanted to take over sovereignty. That is Kuwait. And of course, you had that, you know, multinational force where they go in there and rescue Kuwait. That was a justified war. But World war, the second war where you assume that this man had biological weapons. And then you go in there saying that you had a dossier and that you had concluded that of course he, he had weapons and up till now there's no justification that of course there was biological weapons. So I want I want the uh, Mr. Alfender or Sergeant Sender, to comment on that because that was the that was the, the basis on which that war was fought. And I and I will say too that um you no know, knowing that the eighty the, the, the war which was fought between Iran and Iraq, we've heard of so much you know, things that the Americans or the West may have given to Saddam some weapon to have used on the Iranians, because we heard that he used some gas on some kids or something, and probably we can get some clarification. I'm not too cool uh, with some of the, of the terms, but I will agree with him. But I just want to extend my, 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 my you know, congratulations for him coming up to, at least, um, show that, you know, uh, again, a uh, son of the soil Dominican could go and excel in the military and that we, 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 we give honor give honor to him. And I don't know if he has been given any award, like maybe the highest award of the land, the CISO award. And I wish that we can make recommendations on his behalf so that we can honor our people, even if they did not save in Dominica also, but even when they have done well for our country outside. Come to let me say a very good program and continue to educate the Dominican people through this media. All
1: right. Thank you very much, caller. Certainly appreciate it. Um, Command Sergeant, certainly um, yeah, yeah. A, a recommendation Have there them. for you to be, to be awarded Dominica's highest, highest, highest honor. And I, I must say I would certainly support that. But also, the caller wanted you to comment on, on the, the reasons for going to war in the first place and, and probably your comments on that.
2: Our reasons for going to war. Well, you know, like coming, growing in Grand Bay, we always—I know the folks who grew up during my days in the in the late '50s, early '60s—we had that revolutionary thinking. We, we, our trainers thought always about revolution. You remember the Bob Marley, his songs and everything, and it was just a natural thing for us to get into liberating in a liberation movement so probably that's just where this thing all hatched out in me and as soon as i got to the virgin islands i thought it's
1: Sergeant major i'm um, i'm sorry we have we have another call coming in there yes good evening caller
3: um hi yeah, good evening it's me
1: hi Shirley. welcome
3: <laughs> um sergeant major good evening i have two questions two issues number one When um, the United States Army initially went to Iraq, even if I was not from Iraq, my heart dropped when I saw what happened to the artifacts, the history of Iraq, how that was totally destroyed. I want to ask the Sergeant Major, if you know they could have done anything To prevent that from happening and how he feels about the Iraqi history being wiped out because of that war. My other question is every time I hear um, people speak of the war on the American side, I always hear them speak about the number of Americans that died. Are you there? Yes,
1: yes, we are uh-huh. yeah, go ahead I,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, I always hear them talk about the number of Americans that died, but to me, much attention is not being paid to the number of Iraqis, and I know that number was a very large number that died in Iraq. Would he like to address that, please?
1: Okay, yes, I'm sure we can convey that um. Sergeant Major, also no. Sergeant Major, yes. Um, are you able to hear the questions coming across?
2: I could not hear anything at all. No, my line, my side is dead. I just. Okay All right. Is, my apologies. No my,
1: my apologies for that. But I, I can, I can kind of paraphrase her. Her main, her main concern was that. Um, she heard a lot about the, the, the number of Americans who died, but nothing more, nothing really about the, the number of Iraqis that actually died in this, in this campaign. And what were your thoughts on that?
2: Well, well, I, I was always concerned, and in war there's always what we call, in war, collateral damages. It's not a thing that is nice to talk about, but people will die, civilians will die in, in, in the process. Very unfortunate, but that is the nature of the beast. Frankly speaking, it's not a thing any soldier likes to know that someone is accidentally killed or killed as so-called collateral damage. Nobody likes that, but that is war. And, uh, you know, the, the objective, wants the means, by all any means, you have to get to the end. But it's not a thing that any soldier, I don't think there is anyone in, in, in the army who really, any soldier, who really would like to go out there and kill civilians. Civilians sometimes, unfortunately, find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as I say, it's, it's the nature of the beast.
1: All right, very well said. Uh, we were talking earlier, though, and I wanted because we we time is quickly going past. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Dominica, and I wanted you to contrast for us, Command Sergeant Major, the Dominica you knew, up, that you left in the in the 60s, 70s, and the mm-hmm. Dominica that we have today. Just see your thoughts.
2: Yeah, let, 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 me say that the last passport I had, and I got it from the British Embassy in the Virgin Islands from Puerto Rico, it was a British passport. When I left Dominica, we sang God Save Our Queen. That was in the colonial days. Um, Dominica, I left in 69 for good. It was a different kind of Dominica compared to today. You got, you had your associated state with Great Britain, and then you became independent in 1978. At that time, I was already in the U.S. Army. Dominica has changed in a sense where it's an independent state. And I was, it's just, it's mind-boggling to see a former British colony. Of course, we know the British never really prepared its colonies, its former colonies for independence after they did what they had to do. And then they left you, and you had to take up the pieces and move on. Today, Dominica is independent, 33-year republic, and we have seen the transformation of a former colony, associated state, independent, a republic. It is a republic. I think it is one of the few republics. And the political, the political the the, the way things are in Dominica, it's not something that I like to think of. It's mind-boggling frankly speaking. You would think that uh, Dominica that I left when it was an associated state, or when it was a colony of Great Britain, today you would think Dominica would be a little more progressive or the people. What I find that is mind-boggling about Dominica is the way the people think. With the Internet and technology where it is in 2012, you would think Dominicans would be more progressive. They tend to be timid in their own way. They, they tend to be intimidated by their leaders, and therefore they, they, they have this, And that is not for everybody, frankly speaking, the very few. But I would think that the Dominica I left would be a Dominica today where it would be in par with countries like even Antigua, St. Kitts, Dominica, as I read Dominica, I think it is probably the least in all the Caribbean islands as far as progression, as being progress, least progressive country in the former British colonies. You now, why? I think of people has. The, the people have a lot to be blamed for that. I blame the people because I know we have more pe- Dominicans outside of Dominica than what we have in today. And to see where the political, the the, the political system itself, Dominica is lacking. True democracy. Now, I hate to say that. This is from the outside looking on the inside. When you have a country that the main pillar, what I consider the pillar of democracy, which is your judicial system, is broken, and you see that people tend to go in there and manipulate it, then that in itself tells you that the country has a lot, a lot of progress to make, because the people, the the officers of the court, those you think who would uphold the Constitution, they are the ones who pervert the justice system, they are the ones who undermine, they are the ones who manipulate, then Dominica is just, it's mind-boggling, and it bothers me a lot.
1: And I guess your frustration also has to do with the fact that the the people themselves, those who are adversely affected, don't seem to be concerned enough to, to speak up, or to speak out, or to protest, or to, or to demand change, right?
2: Well, yes, and I think another thing about it, our people are known, and I, I try to think of what kind of people down there were, who if you can buy them, then you have them forever, or people are bought, they're quite venal in their own way, and, and once that is done, you cannot get them to come in and stand on their own, they're intimidated And that kind of intimidation probably is what is the reason why our people are afraid to talk, because if they do, they will lose their jobs and everything. I don't know why a country, Dominica being the third largest in the former British colony, a population of less than 70,000, cannot go out there and demand, demand the best from their leaders, their government. They are lied to, even though they have all the facts, the allegations brought out by Mr. Linton and Angelo, all those folks who are, I call them on the front line, trying to educate the people. And yet still you have people playing naive about what is taking place. They don't understand that the country, they need to take a stand in order to make way for their children. It's not about them. It's not about the 40, 50, 60-year-olds today. It's about the teenagers, the young, the youth. What examples are the leaders setting for these people? You have a few soldiers up front. Lennox Clinton has done an immaculate job in educating the people in bringing out certain allegations, and they are factual. You have, on the other side, the folks who constantly lie to the people, and the people can see the lies and the truth, and yet still, they tend to side with the lies. This is what is mind-boggling to me down okay.
1: here. We have another call coming in. We'll take this, this caller. Hi, right. good evening, caller.
4: Yes, the host. Um, let me ask you, did you say that, did the, did the commander sergeant say that his line was dead?
1: Yes, dead in the sense that he's not able to hear for whatever reason. So, I will have to relay okay. whatever question to him. Yes.
4: Very well. Could you ask him for me, please, whether he remembers Bondolo, Bondolo Sod?
1: Do you remember Bondolo, 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 Bondolo Sod?
4: Bondolo Sod. Okay, Bondolo From Sod. From Brand B,
1: Bondolo Sod, Dimangangi. <laughs> okay, Bondolo Sod, Dimangangi. Dimangangi. Dimangangi, yes. okay. Uh-huh. Yes. Bondolo sod Dimangangi. Okay. I will definitely ask him for that for you, yes. Go right ahead. Okay. Go right ahead. Yes, um uh, CSM Alcendo. We have we have a caller asking you if you remember Bandolo Sword Dimangangi. <laughs> gangi. Did I say that correctly?
4: Bondolo Dimangangi.
1: Bondolo sod. Diman gangi
4: Diman gangi
1: ambassador oh right. i keep saying ambassador command sergeant do you remember
4: command
1: sergeant major command sergeant major. <laughs> major. major yes <laughs> so the question right is do you remember bandalo sword giman gagi gangi did i say that correctly bandalo sword demand gangi is asking if you do remember not, him no i do not remember that you do um, not remember
2: Bangalore, so yeah, it's, you know, I don't, remember, <laughs> I don't that. remember that. What's that okay. about? What is it well, all about? Well,
1: he's from Grand Bay, and he fought. I guess he was trying to give you a message. I'm not sure if he's still if he's still on the line. You'll Bandali- probably call back. But I
2: don't hear the questions though. When they do answer, ask the questions. Ye- I do not yes. hear. I guess you get we're it. We're having
1: some issues that we'll have to technical. Work. Dif- yeah. Yes, but but the question was Bangalore. Bangalore saw demand
2: May, uh, this this <laughs> kind of ring a bell. I think <laughs> okay. this is from Grand Bay from where Grand, our yes, boys. Yes. there was someone who called either me or the, we call him that name.
1: Okay, uh,
2: Bangle, yeah. It's 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 been a long time. It's been forty three years, of course, going back and forth. But as you get older, too. Yeah, but this, this, it kind of ring a bell. Not okay. exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm sorry I'm not able to, to to link you guys up. I'm sure you know we'll have that chance Bangle to sword. Yes, mm-hmm. but uh, Command Sergeant, you were, you, were, you were making the point. We have just about five minutes left. You're making the point about the current situation in Dominica and the fact that the people of Dominica don't seem to want to take charge of their own destiny, that they allow government to get away, with, if you like, with murder. And they don't question enough. They don't ask. They don't hold government accountable enough. And I think that's what your frustration is all about.
2: You are breaking up. I can't show you, Doc, that well you're breaking up.
1: Okay, um, the question has to do with your, your frustration coming from the fact that the, the, Dominicans, the Dominicans currently don't seem to, to demand enough of, of, of the government. They don't seem to hold the government accountable enough.
2: Well, well the, now I, when I grew up in Granby, I was one of the guys who always opposed to the, to the workers who worked at Nassif, the Geneva Estate. And I, I grew up, I remember, invaded a small portion of the estate where we had our own cricket pitch ball. I, I, I remember that. We call it the Valley of Tombs. I was one of the guys who organized that. But um, like I said, in Granby, we had our own independent way of thinking. Now, what I don't understand is why today, in this day of age, that Dominicans would subject themselves to that kind of treatment from the government, that kind of bad governance that everyone hears about, the, the kind of stuff that is taking place in the government and every, all the allegations are out there, and yet still people would continue to perpetuate that kind of behavior and think it's all right when other countries are fighting, they're demonstrating, they're demanding good governance. That is what really bothers me. Doc.
1: And Command Sergeant Major. You come from an area of Dominica that is very pro-government, that has been one of the, of the strongest um, strongholds, if you like, of government. Uh, you, no, you have an opportunity to speak. I'm sure uh, most of them in Granby are listening to you tonight. Um, you have a chance to speak directly to the people of Bay. What would you say to them?
2: You're breaking up. Funny to you say that. In Bay. I know, when I was growing up, I, I was very much a civic-minded individual, even when I was 12, 13, ringing the bell for them, Stanley Fedel, who was the representative, and Raylan St. Clouse. Now, Dominique Granby is known to always hold a dubious distinction of having a representative without portfolio. At that time, I think there were only about 11, 12 constituencies. Today, and Dominique then had 81,000 people, now, Grand Bay is totally different today. Grand Bay don't seem like they have any interest in having good governance. I don't very much they care less about what is taking place in the government. I, I really cherish the, the, the way the people in the northern sector of the island think. I don't know why there is such a contrast with the people in the north versus the people in the, the southeast. Grand Bay, in particular, I think the time has come. I am sorry.
1: okay. Let's let's take this final call, caller. Um, quickly, as we are running out of time.
4: Number one, the mobile man in Dominica. I got what this gentleman say because the lack of the people, you know, we fighting for justice. But one thing, when you fight and we demonstrate, you find well, the police come and arrest we people there. So that is a harsher more thing. So that's why things are working good. The government feel that all oh, what they're doing, they're just right. So that's what happened in there. We just need a good government and people to run the country for us now to save us. Bye bye.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um,
2: why the situation is the way it is.
1: Yes. And Command Sergeant Major, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, It was a very intriguing discussion. I'm sure we will have you back. I want to thank you for your time tonight and and for taking time with us on this weekend interview. We'll be back on your radio next week with another program of this weekend interview. And we'll be having another uh, uh, proud (laughs) gentleman from Granby, former ambassador Crispin Gregoire, will be our guest next week on the 11th of January Ambassador Crispin Gregoire will be our special guest on this weekend in interview. And let me say thank you again, I'm, I'm Command Sergeant Major. You're welcome, Doug. Yes. All right, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you very much again. And let me thank you. Let me thank, of course, our producer for Listener. this evening, Sam George, who has been very helpful to us. And Sam, thank you again for your help. Again, my name is Thompson Fontaine. Thank you for listening to this weekend in interview. Join you us again are next welcome. week. Take care and have a nice evening. Bye bye. Excellent. Join us again next week for another edition of this weekend in interview. Thank mm-hmm.